Welcome to Software Architecture Radio, where we discuss the latest in software architecture patterns and practices with the hands-on practitioners creating them. You can find us on the web at softwarearchitecturerad.io. I'm your host, Matt Stein. This episode of Software Architecture Radio is sponsored by Pivotal. How do you learn new things? You listen to podcasts like this and pick a few key events to attend. At this year's Spring One platform, learn all about the latest technology and patterns for modern systems, Spring Boot, Spring Cloud, Cloud Foundry, and so much more. Go to springoneplatform.io to sign up for this December event. So my guest today is Mike Nygaard. Mike is a vice president at Cognitect, which you might know as the company behind the Closure programming language and the Datomic database. According to his bio, we might find him coding, writing, speaking, or thinking about how the universe works. He has lived with systems in production and learned hard lessons about the importance of operations. Highly available, highly scalable commerce systems are his forte. In fact, he's so good at this that he wrote the book Release It, which, even though it was published in 2007, is still in many ways the canonical book on how to write software that will run in production, run well in production, and keep running. Many of you know, uh, may know Release It as the first place you encountered the now ubiquitous circuit breaker pattern. But today, um, I'd like to talk about a series of blogs that Mike has published recently entitled The New Normal. Before we get into that, Mike, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about you and how you got to be you at this point in your career? Sure. So I got to start in programming uh, pretty early in life and have basically done it my entire professional career. I moved into operations through a series of kind of unusual events and ended up being the lead engineer for a pretty big commerce site. So I was the one who got all the phone calls at three in the morning when stuff would break at, you know, at dinner time and holidays and all of those things. And it taught me a lot about how our software works or doesn't work. That was uh, 10 years ago now that I published Release It. And I'm happy to say there is a, a second edition coming sometime in 2017. So this is my first public announcement of that. I also have an abiding interest in complex systems, you know, not just the technological ones, but the socio-technical systems that include you know, not only the software we're running, but the people who interact with it and the people and processes by which we create that software. So that's led me into a lot of different areas. Agile development was one of the early ones, lean software development. Techniques like Kanban are of interest to me. And I've also looked into some of the works on complex adaptive systems from you know the cybernetics studies and complexity theory studies. So I have a, a pretty wide set of interests in that. And that's what led me into looking at how organizations shape the software they create and how the software they create then shapes the organization as well. Oh, that's fascinating. I think we actually have quite a few overlapping interests these days. I got into uh, some of the complex system stuff myself. I guess it was a couple of years ago now, I came across the uh, Santa Fe Institute, and uh, they have this set of uh, online MOOC-style uh, courses called the Complexity Explorer. I kind of started going through that and um, got into uh, doing a bunch of interesting studies into how ant swarms behave and the types of things that they're able to do um, really with no coordination, just kind of following the simple rules that are hardwired into their brains. They're able to do these fairly uh, impressive structures. I think the one that kind of uh, attached to me the most was the notion of you take a, a swarm of ants and you put them in uh, in water and they will attach themselves to one another and create a raft that um, in many ways uh, has some similar properties to uh, Gore-Tex fabric. And it's very difficult to actually sink that raft. And um, I've actually started using that when I talk to organizations about things like microservices of trying to give them just a sense for you know, what kind of a mindset change that we're really going through right now as we start to rethink how we do software architectures as opposed to uh, the way we thought of them in the past, you know, much more like, hey, we're trying to think, make things that feel a lot more organic now than what maybe we used to. I think that's a, a fruitful line 
to explore, but we need to look at uh, sort of both sides of the coin. So complex systems can uh, adapt and exhibit some amazing emergent behaviors, but they also have some really amazing emergent failure modes too. So uh, I don't know if you've looked at the uh, ant death spiral. Have you ever seen this phenomenon? No, I haven't seen that. Depending on how pheromone trails get laid out, you can actually get almost an entire colony of ants following a spiral inward where they'll pile up in the middle and die. And this is purely an effect of following pheromone trails. And each one that follows the trail reinforces it. Right. But it's a little bit like the light cycles game. You know, they get to a point where there's nowhere to go and they can die off. So on the one hand, we have things like, you know, slime molds can optimize the Tokyo subway system. That was a famous study. Uh, But we also have the ant death spiral. Uh, So emergent behaviors aren't always desirable. And one of the ongoing challenges in any kind of complex system is how do you design the rules of a system so that the emergent behaviors are one that you as the system designer uh, like, that they're favorable outcomes. Oh, that's interesting. I have to, uh, have to look into that. I think that's actually a pretty nice segue into uh, the things that I put together to talk about from the blog series. So uh, I, I thought it was interesting that the way you start out by acknowledging the notion that folks are really talking about things like microservices as being the road to salvation, as you say. And uh, of course, there's a lot of that going on right now. Everybody's coming to our company and other companies saying, help us do this. And you kind of explain that, you know, if we don't understand what makes those things work, and I think you just touched on it a little bit with your double-sided coin about failure modes versus uh, positive emergent behaviors that you, you touched on this notion of, of what you call continuous partial failure and that we have to embrace that state. What exactly uh, does that mean and, and how does it affect architecture? I need to unpack that at kind of two different levels. I'll start with continuous partial failure. The basic notion there is we're building large, interconnected, interdependent networks of systems. Essentially, we're turning our entire enterprises into one giant distributed system. And distributed systems, you know, their primary characteristic is that things fail. In fact, I I think it was uh, back in the 80s that uh, Leslie Lamport said, a distributed system is one in which I can't get any work done because some machine somewhere I've never heard of has gone down. So it's sort of like you simply have to expect that things will go down. But more than just expecting failures and sort of building algorithms and systems that survive failures, we can actually think of this as as a way to lead us to better designs overall that give us more freedom and flexibility. So one of the points that I always try to make is if I'm a service provider, there is no difference to my consumers between downtime and a release. So if I want to be able to upgrade things and release on my schedule, all of my consumers need to be able to tolerate downtime from my service, interruptions or uh, requests that come back in a failed state. And so this idea of continuous partial failure is both a statistical reality in large distributed systems and it's a way of loosening the coupling between different services so they can each upgrade and, and be deployed at their own rate. I regard that as sort of necessary to succeed with any kind of a microservices strategy. But then the other question is, why are we doing microservices in the first place? And I think there's sort of two camps, uh, and I'm going to be a little cynical here, but there's the camp that's doing microservices because they've gotten frustrated with the pace of change in IT They can't tolerate long monolithic projects. They can't tolerate the risk of a big bang release. And so they want to decouple and decentralize this stuff to gain speed and maneuverability. And then there's the group that is doing microservices because Netflix is doing microservices and Netflix is succeeding. And, uh, you know, of course, nobody's going to identify themselves as being in that second category. But I think it has become sort of the de facto architecture, or what I think of as the vernacular. It's, it's the language of the day for talking about systems. And if you simply approach it in that way, you will decentralize, 
You can even build in resilience at the individual services layer. But what you're going to find as you go down this road is, great, I'm releasing individual services. I've got a thousand deployments a day happening, but I still can't achieve a strategic objective because now to get something done across my whole system, I have to go and negotiate with 25 product owners instead of one. So there is this baby and bathwater situation where decentralizing and moving to microservices gains you that speed and maneuverability, but you still need some way of communicating priorities and deciding where you need new services, where you need to kill old ones. That uh, decision-making can either be centralized, in which case you're fighting Conway's law and your org structure doesn't match your software structure, or you can decentralize that decision-making, but you need some way to radiate to people what the values are, what the motives are, what the organizational priorities are. And so that's a lot of what I've been talking about here is saying, okay, you're going down this road toward microservices. Let's look a year into the future and talk about the problems you're going to encounter then and figure out how we can address them now. Got it. You know, you, de- you described that a, a phenomenon there that I've seen in a lot of different paradigm shifts, I guess, in, in the time that I've, I've been doing software where we'll, we'll have what looks like a, a change in direction in the industry, whether it was uh, extreme programming, agile, um, SOA, DevOps, continuous delivery, all these different conversations that have dominated the industry and, and the kind of popular media in the industry for a period of time. And you have some very thoughtful adopters of that, but then you also have some kind of, I'll for sake of a uh, lack of a better term, uh, you know, kind of bandwagon jumpers that will kind of say, okay, we're going to go be agile and we're going to take all of the things that we're doing right now and change their names over to the agile names and, and then we'll be agile. And, and I've seen that happen a lot as it seems like a repetitive phenomenon. And I'm, I'm, I almost feel like I'm starting to see it a little bit in some of the microservices adoption that I've encountered as well, where you'll have, again, some very thoughtful teams that understand what the reason is that they're going to do this. And you'll also see some folks who will kind of cargo cult a Martin Fowler article and go do a bunch of things. And you ask them, well, why are you doing this? They say, well, because it's on the list of bullet points that, that Martin said we had to follow and then we would have microservices. Yeah, it, it is enough to uh, make you become cynical after a couple of rounds of this. My friend David Hussman does a lot of agile consulting. and He's kind of walked away from the A word now, but uh, when he was doing most of this, his first question to a company that brought him in would be why? You know, so you want to be agile. Why? What is it you're trying to achieve? What, what do you want to accomplish? And very often, you know, the answers were not really thought out at all. So it does happen. And one of the ways I illustrate that for people is to say, you know, the early adopters of the CMM saw dramatic success with it. And then it got translated into a bunch of document templates. So, you know, almost any advance that we make can be cargo culted and can be reduced to, you know, a series of rote template actions. I think the the only way we can combat that is by teaching and communicating as broadly as we can. And that's part of what I'm trying to do. So on the concept of why, I think a thread that seems to run throughout the series and uh, that you actually introduce in your second post is this concept of anti-fragility. And I fell in love with the concept myself. I guess this was, again, a couple of years ago. I was at the Cloud Foundry Summit and I met um, a gentleman by the name of Russ Miles, who... Uh, I know Russ. You do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Russ is a great guy, very sharp. And uh, he's, he was working on a book at the time called Anti-Fragile Software. And um, I had just kind of started delving into this microservices conversation. And he walked me through that. And um, I, I went and I read Taleb's book and uh, really dug into that and eventually started giving a talk on the concept at a few different conferences last year. And I've, I've got that 
linked in the show notes, but I'd love to hear what you have to say about it and, you know, why does it seem to kind of permeate the entire series of posts that you wrote? So just as a, uh, a logistical note, if we're going to mention Russ's book, we should also make sure to plug it properly. Uh, it is available on LeanPub, and I have it in my library here. The idea of anti-fragility does run through the, the whole series. And in fact, it, in some ways, I could have led with that and titled the series Anti-Fragility. It, it's because we're building these networks of systems with higher coupling and one thing we've seen from every industry and every kind of complex system is the tighter the coupling, the more uh, synchronous the processes are or continuous processes, and the more you have production pressure, the more you're going to get catastrophic failures. This was written about in a book called uh, Normal Accidents, where they were looking at things like chemical plant disasters and oil platform sinking and, and you know things that really cost a lot of lives. Fortunately, most of our systems are not in that category, but they exhibit many of the same characteristics as this sort of failure-inducing technology. A high degree of coupling, what he calls dynamic coupling, meaning two things that don't correlate today may suddenly become correlated. And when that occurs, it means the system has moved into a new regime of behavior, and you don't really know how it's going to behave. Often it behaves quite badly. And so as we're building these, you know, integrated distributed systems, they're all running synchronously. They're all sort of exposed to unpredictable uh, demand volume from the internet uh, at some edge or another, and that, that percolates inward. We really have all the characteristics of systems that we can't understand, can't control, and are going to fail. Now, I can point to lots of other systems like that in society today, and, and those alarm me as well. The IT systems are the ones that I can, can help to deal with. One approach is to make them robust. Robust simply means that when you poke them and disturb them away from equilibrium, they will return to an equilibrium state on their own. And I think that that's a good first step. So if you're in a completely unstable state, getting to robustness is good. However, robust systems don't necessarily accommodate change all that well. So if we have a desire for different business units to be making use of common cloud services and core infrastructure and so on, it's entirely possible to have a robust system and one of your lines of business spins up a new application that suddenly multiplies demand on a core system. And now you have overtaxed that core system and you're actually denying service to all the other uh, applications that use that core system. And so you've, you've destabilized your entire company. We can't risk that. And so people put in control mechanisms and, and big uh, review processes and architecture review boards and all of those things that we know slow down the process of adapting to the competitive environment. So if we want to be able to adapt to the competitive environment and we don't want those heavyweight review processes, then we have to build anti-fragility into our systems so that when somebody deploys a new piece of software, not only do we not go down, but we actually get better, more survivable, more maneuverable. Now, this is sounding kind of abstract, so I want to I get concrete. I'm going to use an example that uh, Adrian Cockroft talked about uh, before he left Netflix, or maybe right as he was leaving Netflix. Uh, it was when we had a, a leap second that was sort of unexpected, and tons and tons of Linux machines all around the world basically went out to lunch because of this leap second. They stopped responding. What Adrian observed was that one particular group of servers in their network survived that leap second because they were just on a different version of Linux, an older kernel or something like that, uh, whereas the rest of them failed. Well, what this tells you is that having a monoculture of operating systems might be a bad idea. And so when we look at things like uh, configuration management, we can say we're going to use configuration management to become more robust by making sure that if any of our builds deviate from their standard, we're going to put them back to standard and they're all going to be the same. Once we've done that, we can go further. We need to do that to get things under control. But once we've done that, we can go further and say, we're going to use configuration management to ensure that we've got a variation of operating systems that all work, but they differ enough that we'll have some kind of herd immunity, or, or we'll have some uh, genetic variation that allows them to survive these weird events. 
And so you look at all the, the different places where we have variables like that, you know, operating system, runtime environment, uh, software stack, all of these things. You can say we would probably be more robust if we could create a variety of configurations and verify that they all work uh, rather than creating a monoculture. I want to skip over a couple of other questions because you gave me a nice segue into this one question. It's a few posts down the list, the art of war maneuverability and microservices. And you talked about the organization that flows like water, as Sun Tzu states, kind of shaping its course according to the nature of the ground over which it flows. And that sounds exactly like what you were just talking about in that you know we don't know as I guess our system is flowing over the ground that it's flowing over, we don't know what type of territory it's going to encounter. And so there's that whole set of, I guess, unknown unknowns. I, did, I don't know what's going to happen to every system that I have when I encounter a leap second. So I do know, though, if I have complete lack of variation across my systems that it's probably likely that they're all going to behave. You know, whatever happens is going to happen to all of them at once. It's going right? to happen to all of them. And if that's good, great. But if it's not good, then we have uh, you know, a catastrophic event. And so you're kind of using those ideas to introduce this notion of evolutionary design, which is something that I actually talked about in my uh, anti-fragility talk that I gave. And, and, and Russ actually talks about this as well as um, this kind of survival of the fittest around services, almost like a uh, competitive market-based economy of service design where, you know, the services that do well and that people want to consume, will they survive. And the services that don't do well or that people don't find utility in consuming, well, they'll eventually end up dying off. And when I talk about this concept with engineers and architects and even executives, and I start to tell them, yeah, you're going to build some things that, well, you end up throwing them away because they end up not being that useful. And you're going to build some things that are the opposite of that. And you're going to build some things that are somewhere in the middle. They really get a little bit freaked out by that notion that we're going to plan to create some redundancy or at least apparent redundancy. And we're going to plan to throw some things away. Yeah, boy, there, there are so many different uh, directions I want to go from this. One more uh, sort of uh, reference for the, the show notes. Uh, Neil Ford and Rebecca Parsons from ThoughtWorks are actually working on a book called Evolutionary Architecture, where they're going to unpack this subject in presumably thorough detail. Yep. One of the reasons that executives get really uncomfortable with the idea of uh, building things to throw them away is that uh, we still regard investment in software as a capital investment. Same as you would purchasing a machine to install on a, a shop floor. Uh, and the idea is that, you know, we're investing in our production capacity. And so whatever we put into this uh, is going to improve the value of our company. But they don't also look at the inventory side of it. And so I, I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for disposing of code rather than continuing to pay higher and higher maintenance costs. And that's unthinkable when you have these monolithic 10 million line applications. But when you are in this microservices area, disposability is kind of what you're after. You want to be able to rewrite things on a very short-term basis. The notion of uh, flowing like water and changing your course uh, is really meant to come from two different directions. So one way in which you're constantly discovering the terrain is in your business competing with other businesses. So you make a move, they make a counter move, you make another move. Every once in a while, somebody comes in from an entirely different industry and you know eats your lunch and you need to be able to respond to that. Or maybe you want to invade somebody else's industry and eat their lunch. And so you have this, uh, this notion of uh, the competitive landscape and your sort of fitness in the competitive landscape is always being tested and always uh, being challenged. Uh, and as long as we're using biological metaphors, I'll also say that in biology, in ecosystems, we often find that organisms create a new niche for other organisms to occupy. So I forget which book I read this in, but it was a great view of uh, sort of coral uh, atolls in the ocean where there's this whole elaborate uh, hierarchy that ultimately starts with sunlight and algae, but 
sort of every tier of this microscopic ecosystem feeds on the waste products or the denizens of a different tier. And so you get this network effect where some of the organisms or companies in our case literally could not exist without the niches created by other organisms. And so this competitive landscape is continuously changing and you can't just map a course over the next several years and say, this is where we're going to be in our five-year plan. You have to plan to adapt and maneuver and continue changing what you're doing throughout that time. Someone may create a new niche that you want to occupy. You may create a new niche and want to have a partner ecosystem in that niche. So uh, that's changing all the time. But we also have changes that come internally. So people will create things that now make it feasible for you to operate in a way that you couldn't before. One of my classic examples is uh, when uh, Amazon created S3 and EBS, it facilitated all of these other services that they're building on top of it. So, you know, S3 is now the hub where most of their data movement services land data and take it from. Well, the rest of those services would be much more expensive to build and would integrate together much worse without the blob store of S3. So you can find these things happening all the time inside your own company. A group will make a service that suddenly takes a bunch of things that were economically infeasible to attack, and it makes them possible, Uh, maybe even more efficient than what you were doing before. We always have to think at, at sort of two levels, like where is my company, my organism in the competitive landscape, And what's going on inside my company that's its own sort of ecosystem inside the company. You mentioned about services being created, uh, having a life cycle, uh, maybe even being redundant. You know, you may have two or three competing implementations of a service. One of them will be easier to use and attract more users and get growth and others uh, will languish. That kind of redundancy is really uncomfortable to traditional IT organizations. So traditional IT is all about managing cost, eliminating redundancy, making sure there's one system to do a particular thing. Unfortunately, that is the opposite of adaptive complex systems. That is creating fossils from the get-go. We have to be comfortable with some inefficiency at the micro level to gain that competitive advantage at the macro level. And that's one of the lessons that we're, we're going to have to be very comfortable with uh, in the microservices world. In fact, uh, Randy Schaup gave a talk at CraftConf a couple of years ago uh, where he explicitly made the analogy to uh, biological evolution for services inside, I believe it was inside Google, uh, that you know people would create services, they would gain users, users were like the food for services to get more resources. Uh, and the ones that had a diminishing number of users or, or not enough users would be killed. Unfortunately, w- when we're running projects, uh, we usually do the exact opposite of that. We take whichever projects are uh, running over budget and taking too long, and we put more resources behind those. And we take the ones that are succeeding and delivering and running well in production, and we starve them of resources. Sun Tzu would probably tell us to do the opposite. You know, take the ones that are succeeding and put more behind those. Let the strength flow into the part that's working and then starve the parts that aren't working. Yeah, there's a couple of different directions uh, that, that I could go from here. Every, every, it seems like every time you, you come to the end of an idea um, and, I, and I'm, I'm ready to jump in and go somewhere, you add another idea that changes my mind. I think one of the things that I want to touch on, again, is in in that notion of redundancy is it feels like we're challenging a very deeply held notion that we've had in the software industry, at least since, I guess, the Pragmatic Programmer was published, that don't repeat yourself, you know, dry, this whole almost, uh, you know, the first of the however many commandments of good software design is if you know you are an, an architecture is that everything needs to be dry and anytime you create duplication then that duplication should be considered evil and i feel like we've almost taken that principle which is is a good principle when taken in context with the other principles that we find and we've kind of elevated it to this almost unnatural height where 
it's able to you know, play a trump card against any other design choice or trade-off that we're, that we're looking at. Do you run into that yourself? I use dry a lot within a code base, but I worry about it when it leads me to create dependencies outside my team. I'm strongly anti-dependency. Dry can come into conflict with that because, you know, we may say, here's the thing we're doing in two or three different applications, and so we should factor it out into a library that we can all share. Uh, except now we've created coupling between the teams and their release schedules on this shared library. So that's typically where I draw the line. Now I'll say even within a code base, uh, sometimes there's sort of a false reuse that we can see and, and dry should be applied also with a view toward overall complexity of the code base. So, you know, I'm not a big fan of introducing extra factories just so I can dry out a piece of code, for example. Between code bases, uh, I'm very skeptical. And between teams, I'm very skeptical. I'll also say, uh, I think Yagni is another one of those uh, heuristics that got elevated to the status of commandment, and that we need to rethink that when we're looking at boundaries between teams as well. So for example, it's often the case in services that you'll find two or three that are doing pretty much exactly the same thing. And it's not uh, duplication because they're behaving differently or they offer different operational characteristics. It's because each of them is just one level too concrete in their service implementation. And they need to be just a little bit more abstract. That's a book waiting to be written about how to design interfaces for microservices so that you actually get the benefits. Because I think the, the sort of default uh, REST interface to an entity service approach uh, leads you into disaster. Okay, I'm not going to be able to just let you end on that. So this is pervasive right now. I walk into many different companies and you know one of the stated goals is we want to rip out all of the integration architecture that we have right now and we want to replace it with all these services that are going to be based on on restful interfaces and we'll set aside the conflict around what does rest actually mean probably for another podcast because we could yeah, we could go an hour on that yeah exactly but um you say that okay if, if, if you're going to go do that to and this my, my mind just connected two threads to borrow a title of another book that i actually picked up from the footnotes and release it if you go down the, this n notion of moving everything over to these REST interfaces, you're you're basically inviting disaster. That's the title of the book. Mm -hmm. And uh, wh why why do you think that? So I'm specifically talking about entity services with kind of CRUD style interfaces. This is the thing that people reach for first when they look at their domain and they kind of take all the nouns from their domain and they turn them each into services. We're fooled by the noun into thinking that we've got one unitary whole concept. But if you unpack it, you'll often find that there are, there are quite a few different things going on. So I'll give you an example from a, uh, a commerce company that I was working with. They wanted to make a shopping cart service. And they started, as most of these discussions start, with what is the data in the service. I prefer to look at what is the behavior that it's doing. And I got into this because no one could agree on what the data needed to be. So when we looked at the behavior, we found that the shopping cart domain object in their current system was doing many different things. It was the place where you would put items that you intended to buy. And that's what we sort of think of as the traditional shopping cart. But every time you looked at that shopping cart, it would reprice those items. Unless the shopping cart was flagged as being a quote, in which case the prices were fixed for a certain period of time, but had an expiration. So here we have two quite different behaviors. One of them, the, the quote, had a fixed list of items and a fixed set of prices. The other one had a, an accumulating set of items and variable prices. As we dug into it, we found another usage, which was uh, they had a subscriptions module for the same system that would create a shopping cart entirely for the purpose of turning it immediately into an order. And so here the shopping cart was just sort of a necessary state on the way to creating an order. If you try and create a single service that does all these things, it's going to have a very complex interface. It'd be very difficult to use. The 
consumers of that interface are going to have a lot of semantic knowledge about what the cart does in these different modes. And so if I'm building a storefront, I have to be aware that this thing could also be used for quotes and make sure I tell it I'm not using this for a quote. Well, what happens when we need to add a fourth use? Maybe we say there's uh, fundamentally no difference between a shopping cart and a wish list. You know, when I'm accumulating a wish list, it's a list of items that I would like to have. It has variable prices. The items may get discontinued. It changes over time. You know, it has all the same characteristics of a shopping cart, except you don't turn it all into one order. And so what we start to see is this, this false unity in the concept of shopping cart. People were fooled by having a single noun for what was really multiple different behaviors. So what we ended up doing was saying, we should have an order service that doesn't just take a shopping cart ID, like the old order domain object and order controller did. Instead, we should have an order service that takes a document, which is the list of stuff we're going to order at that point in time. Where that document comes from now becomes flexible. We can feed it from a shopping cart service used by the storefront. We can feed it from a quote in a quote service that's used by the quoting system. We can feed it with items from a wish list. The subscription system now doesn't even need a shopping cart. It just directly submits what it wants the order to be. And so by breaking up that concept, we've made each of the services much simpler to use for the consumers. We've opened up the possibility of creating orders through different channels that don't even exist now. And there's no interference between you know, the, the storefront needing to know about the quote system or the quote system needing to know about the way storefront items are handled. That way of partitioning things looks like duplication because we say now there's multiple different databases and multiple different services that can all accumulate lists of items in different ways. But it has broken the dependencies between teams in a way that is much easier to manage. So it sounds like, again, a, a few different things come to mind. Um, one is the continual question that, that, that I get asked, which seems to be the golden question of, okay, well, what, what services should I actually have? And it sounds like, and maybe a lot of this is just influenced by the programming paradigm switch from, you know, the kind of the not necessarily correct, but prolific way of thinking about object-oriented programming in terms of nouns and functional programming in terms of behaviors and verbs. And it sounds like maybe one of the ways to arrive at a better service topology is to think more in terms of verbs and behaviors instead of nouns. Is that kind of what you're getting at? I think so. And I'll, I'll go a little bit further even and say what goes in the services are sort of verb-like things. What can you do for me? What you pass to the service, I would describe not even as nouns, but as adjectives. So what am I passing to the order service? It is stuff which is orderable. And maybe there's more stuff to it. This is what I tried to touch on in the data-oriented section of, of my blog series, where I'm, I'm trying to get to this idea that you shouldn't over-specify the data that you're passing around, but you should specify it enough to say, if you pass me the attributes I need, and, and by the way, I'm assuming open data formats, open-ended, not open like published. But, you know, think about JSON. You can add more keys to a JSON document and it shouldn't harm anything. So if you pass me a document that has the three or four namespaced keywords that I care about, then I can operate on the document you passed me. This is pretty different from the idea of saying, uh, I'm going to write uh, an IDL, like my protocol buffers definition, and I'm going to generate classes off of that, that you know, exactly map all of these fields. When you do that, you're over-specifying things and you lose a lot of flexibility. So another example would be, again, from the commerce domain, can I ship a thing to a place? Uh, that is sometimes a complex question because it depends on, you know, where I have facilities, where I'm authorized to do business, uh, whether the target location is uh, known to be a, a source of fraud and so on. Well, one way to approach that is to say, I have a shipping service and I'm going to pass it 
the prospective order, and it's going to know all of the rules about fraud, about distribution centers, about shipping prices and methods and, and all of that. And I pass it the whole order and exactly that order, and it tells me what the shipping is going to be. Again, that's going to make the shipping service too big to manage, and it's going to require the consumers of that service to know too much about all the other parts of the rules. What I would rather see is uh, a service that simply answers, is this shipping location likely to be fraudulent? And I pass it a document that has the shipping location in it. I can pass exactly the same document to the one that tells me, what is my delivery timeline? That service is going to care about the shipping location and the items in that order. But I can pass the same document to both. So as a consumer, I have the flexibility to create that document and to add whatever else I need and pass it around. The services on the other end cannot just do some annotation-based mapping into domain classes for that to work. That's going to over-specify the interface and make it harder to interact. So what do you think drives us toward that behavior that you just touched on at the end? Because, you know, I think one of the common threads that's becoming interesting and top of mind to a lot of the teams that I've seen in the last maybe six months or so, um, now that people have kind of gone down this road to either service orientation for the first time or um, they're moving from SOA to more granular microservices, whatever got them to where they're going, um, they're really starting to think about this notion of contracts between uh, services. And they almost always seem to want to be able to get to, okay, I can take in some sort of a request. And by the time I write any code that's actually going to deal with that request, it's going to be nicely packed into some POJO that I'm going to interact with. And I don't have to think about the data format. And so something before the data gets to me is going to ensure that the data is, is, is formatted appropriately. And it feels like a lot of the approaches that people are thinking about taking, um, again, whether it's protocol buffers or other schemas, uh, Avro, whatever it may be, or even if they're using JSON, but they're using some API IDL to automatically parse the JSON and ensure that it's in the format. In some ways, removing a lot of the flexibility that the JSON gives you. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is about, I don't know if it's the programmer or the architect or just in general, the way we think about passing data between applications that makes us want to go from that very flexible, just data kind of format to something that's much more concrete. I kind of have a foot in two different camps here. And so that gives me a perspective that at the risk of, of throwing darts, I know you work for Pivotal, uh, at the risk of throwing darts, I, I do think it's a languages and framework driver that drives people in that direction. If I can just put some annotations on a class and have my data on the wire mapped straight into that POJO, that's the easiest thing in the world for me to do. And frankly, the, the fact that Java lacks uh, really good functions for creating your own maps and nested maps and traversing them and so on, uh, leads you to uh, want to put everything in objects because, you know, I can just do uh, foo.bar.baz to, to traverse the, the objects. Uh, whereas if it's a map, I have to do a get and check if it's nil and do another get and check if that's nil and so on. But I do most of my day work in closure. And in the closure world, getting a map off of the wire is actually the easiest thing to do. And traversing levels of a nested map and indexing into uh, lists in that map, very, very easy things to do. And so for us, uh, we would rather say we're going to pass around uh, data in, in what we call Eden format or in uh, transit format, where it comes across the wire as you know just raw data, like primitives, maps, lists, and uh, you know strings, integers, and whatnot. So it, it is in large part... Uh, languages and frameworks. There is an architectural remedy to that, uh, which we could apply in the Java world, which is inspired by the hexagonal architecture or ports and adapters architecture, where I say my domain objects are uncoupled to any implementation technology. They really are POJOs to the extent that I don't even uh, sprinkle uh, framework-based annotations into them. What I get off of the wire 
is not a domain object. It is an object representation of the data that was on the wire. And this is a subtle distinction, but you know, instead of having a, a domain-like name for, say, shippable item, I should have something which is like document. And from the document, I can ask for the pieces of the document that I care about. But I'm, I have to go through a translation layer to go from that technology-based artifact at the edge to the domain-based uh, object at the core of my hexagonal architecture. And so this views each of the connectors. You know, there, there's a connector to HTTP. That's a little uh, stack of layers where at the HTTP end, I'm talking in terms of uh, HTTP concepts. You know, I've got a request, a response, uh, body, and so on. Uh, and then it goes through the stack of translation layers to the domain where I get my shippable. Uh, similarly, talking to the database then is another stack of layers that goes from shippable to table, row, column, entity, that sort of thing. That's the concept of the hexagonal architecture. And I think it's a way that we could restore some of that flexibility and still have the power of the frameworks in Java land. Interesting. I feel I feel some of the same pain and even internal struggle, muscle memory, however you want to frame it, of when I am working in Java, and I often work in Java because of where I work, that I want to get something to an object format, concrete object format, often as quickly as possible, just because dealing with anything else is so incredibly painful in the language. Yeah, I mean, the XML APIs are a disaster. The JSON APIs are a disaster. They're really difficult to work with. Even if you can get something to a map or, or a list, the API that's you know kind of built into the language is pretty verbose and not nearly as rich as what you find in languages where you expect to be dealing with those data structures all the time. And again, we deal with collections a lot in Java, but most of the collections I see are Either, you know, in, in, when I review code of uh, various systems, either I've got a list of something and I'm going to iterate over it. Now I've got concrete objects or I've got a map of something and there I'm, I'm now accessing by key. But again, I'm getting to an object. I'm never working with the map or the list as the data structure that I want. I'm using that to just grab a hold of some aggregate and then get to the things in the aggregate as quickly as possible. I think as people get more thorough adoption of the streams APIs, we're going to see more use of the collections as collections in Java. I'll also say uh, we had a little discussion in our uh, uh, company uh, chat room about uh, how we talk about Clojure as a functional programming language, but it might even be more correct to call it a data-first programming language. And so, you know, obviously it makes it very easy for us to, to work with data as data, and I really do believe that when we're talking about data on the wire, data as data, not data as domain objects, is the right way to go. Hmm. Well, there's a lot of other things that I would love to dive into, but I'm looking at the time, and we've been going right around an hour now, so um, I wanted to get to uh, my last two questions that I that I always ask of, of every guest, and then, um, I don't know, maybe... Uh, Maybe sometime we might be able to have another conversation and unpack some of these other topics. But before we jump off, one of the goals of, of the podcast is to give you know architects, especially people who are getting started in the industry, are interested in moving from maybe a developer role into an architectural role, an education outlet that is consumable in a commute or something like that. And so I'd, I'd ask if you had one biggest piece of, of advice for someone who is getting started as an architect or aspiring to be one, uh, what would that be? You know, I, I think a resource that uh, is underappreciated these days is the original wiki, the C2 wiki that uh, Ward Cunningham created. It was for some time known as the Portland Pattern Repository. Uh, it was also the the repository of all the early agile thinking. It's all still there. And the nice thing about it is that the discussions are all still there. Unlike, say, uh, uh, Wikipedia, where the discussion is all you know hidden away and, and off in a different place, with the C2 wiki, you'll see someone talk about a particular pattern, and then you'll see all the discussion that people had about that pattern 
whether it's a good idea, a bad idea, how it applies in different situations, when it doesn't apply. It's a fantastic resource, and you can do, learn a lot by just wandering around on the C2 wiki and reading everything that you can. Nice. I remember that. Did you have any others that you wanted to, to throw out? Um, I would say uh, my favorite book series on learning architecture is the Pattern-Oriented System Architecture series. Uh, the POSA books are another great resource for learning about architectural styles and patterns that you won't have enough time or projects in your career to encounter all of these in the wild or, or in your work. So it's great to learn about them in one place. Cool. We'll uh, definitely get all of these. I think we've probably named off close to 10 books over the course <laughs> of the conversation. So we'll populate the show notes with lots of reading material to keep people busy for the first half of the year. Well, this has been um, a really fascinating conversation, as I expected it would be. Um, unfortunately, we're running up on the time that we had. But before we go, um, where might uh, listeners who are interested in finding about, out more about what you're doing these days be able to track that stuff down? Probably the two best places would be the Cognitech blog and my personal blog. And I'm sure we'll have links to those. Absolutely. Well, cool. Well, thanks very much for, uh, for coming on the show. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Architecture Radio. For more information, including other episodes, visit us at softwarearchitecturerad.io. Join the discussion by posting to an individual episode's comment thread or leave us feedback on iTunes. You can also message or mention us on Twitter at SWArchRadio. This episode was produced by Mandy Moore. You can find her on the internets practically everywhere at at the Ruby Rep. Also, if you haven't heard of her podcast, Greater Than Code, you should go check it out at www.greaterthancode.com because people matter. Until next time, this is Matt Stein for Software Architecture Radio. Software Architecture Radio.